I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branch. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. And if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. When Jesus is giving this declaration here, he's making it abundantly clear to his disciples, and ultimately to us, of what his intentions were. Is that we are to abide in him. And we have to define that. Abiding simply means to remain stable in a fixed state. That we are living our lives through Him, in Him, with Him. In Him we live, in Him we move, in Him we have our being. We have to get these things, priorities, correct. But, it says that without that, you will, uh, you will bear no fruit because you are connected to me. If you are not, can you bear fruit? No, of course not. See, we live in a world where we're, we talk about the idea of faith is we're waiting to see to believe, and yet we have to believe in order to see. We have to understand that. And so we've been in this area of faith, and there's nothing more important in, in, in Scripture than faith. But because of the culture of which we live in, and the way that we live our lives, we don't understand what faith means. We don't actually live our lives by faith. We live our lives by convenience. We live our lives by comfort. We live our lives completely contrary to what this says. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we see it define what it is. Faith is the substance of things that are hoped for. It's the evidence of things that are not seen. So this is where we get the idea that you believe to see. This is where we get that idea. For by it, that being faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. It's by faith that Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. Now why was it by faith? He had to bring it, he had to trust God. Yes, Lord, I'm bringing this to you knowing that we will prosper, knowing that there will be more. By faith Enoch was taken away and he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. But before it was... Before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There's two parts there. We cannot please God without faith. We have to come to God in faith. Therefore, when we come to him, we must believe that he is. What does that mean? That he exists? That's part of it. But believe in what he has described himself as. Who he has made himself out to be. But that's not what we do. We like to take a God and mold him into an image that is convenient for us. And we'll worship that God. And then he says, he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. Would you not want the rewards that come from the creator of heaven and earth? Why would you not? But we don't chase after those. We chase after convenience. We chase after comfort. And part of that is because we are not truly connected to the vine. I'll come back to that. Go to James 2. 
James chapter 2, verse 14. What is a prophet? If someone says that he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what is a prophet? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now what does this mean? What does it mean, faith without works is dead? In no way are they, is James trying to insinuate that if you do these certain things, then therefore you are right before God. That's not what he's insinuating. That's often misunderstood, but that's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that you claim that you are connected to the vine, then prove it. How do you prove it? If we were to go out into an orchard, and I said, there is a row of apple trees. Do you know how you prove that? Pull the apples off. If I said, there's a bunch of orange trees, and they're making apples, what do you call me? Dumb. <laughs> I work alone, thank you. I mean, the thing is, guys, is this is what James is saying. You're saying you have faith, but your works don't demonstrate that. If a brother or a sister is lacking in the daily necessity, they don't have food, they don't have clothing, and what are you saying? Oh, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. That's the same thing when somebody puts up some long, dramatic post on Facebook. Oh, prayers. How many of those people actually stop to pray? I mean, it, it'd probably be almost none. Hopefully, that's not us. We don't stop to pray. Why? Because we don't actually believe prayer works. It's going to get heavy today. Verse 18, someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God? Well, great, you do well. Even the demons believe that, and they tremble. But you want to know, oh, foolish man? That's how they said idiot back then. The faith without works is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect. The scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. What happens when the spirit of man leaves the body? The body stops working. It's like taking the batteries out of something. It's the life. You take the batteries out, it's not going to work very well. So what happens here? Faith without demonstration is useless now in america when we somebody we when we have an altar call and we're like okay how many of you guys want to give your life to christ today and they raise their hand and they recite some sort of a prayer we call it the sinner's prayer and we're all excited and we write it down or we we have a a baptism service and we're like hey yeah we got 37 people baptized oh man we're so excited do you know how it works in other parts of the world they wait you know what they're waiting for? To see if what they said is true. Because in other parts of the world, it costs you something to be a Christian. It, the persecution is unbelievable. I was talking to the guy that we support in Pakistan just recently, Sunil. 
And the persecution that they face over there is unreal. Like, bad. So when somebody says they're a Christian over there, they're risking their life to do so. Because at any point in time, somebody could kill them for it. What do we have here? Nothing. We get excited. We take count. We're like, oh, good, look what we're doing. Do you know what happens when you baptize somebody that really hasn't repented of their sins and given their life to Christ? They get wet. That's it. That's all they've done. We just gave them a, a bath. Might as well baptize a cat. Be about the same thing. Hopefully the reaction will be a little different. But I mean, the thing is, guys, we're doing things. We're not demonstrating. Our lives are not in demonstration of the goodness of God because we are not relying upon God in any way, shape, or form. If we're just being frank. If we're being truthful, this is not what we're doing. When we look at the hall of faith as a sampling in Hebrews 11 of the people of God that trusted God, it was something that took place as a belief and a trust that they lived their lives in a certain way. Where would you and I fall? How many of us would willingly give up our child, sacrifice, be the one to sacrifice our child at the command of God? Most of us would not. We'd say, no, there's no way. I'm not going to do that. But God, you promised. Most of us wouldn't give up our jobs if God said, I want you to go do something different. Most of us wouldn't stay in our jobs if God said, I want you right here, right now. I don't care if the pay's better. Do you realize that? Think about this. How many people actually pray, Lord, what do you want me to do? Very few. Most people are like, Lord, I want to do this. Will you make it happen? That's how we pray. That's how we seek God. Is that what God intended? Are we connected to the vine then saying, okay, Lord, your life's flowing through me. Where do you want me to be? Where do you want this branch? What do you want me to do? No, we're not. We are chasing after what we want. In James chapter 1, we'll back up. We'll catch some of the context. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that interesting how he phrased that? The brother of Jesus. You think that might carry a little clout. But he didn't start with that. He didn't say, James, the brother of your Messiah. I was there. I watched him do all the stuff he did. Little brother, too. I wonder if Jesus ever smacked him in the back of the head. <laughs> James, a bondservant. What does that mean? I'm in tribute to God. Until when? Until I die. To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. See, that's what I'm talking about in other parts of the world. Before they will count somebody on the rolls as they've given their life to Christ, they'll wait till their faith is tested to see if it actually sticks. See if they actually meant what they said. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally, without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. But let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and he is unstable in all his ways. Verse 21. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his face in a mirror. He observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he is. 
But he who looks in the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. You see, what we're talking about here is somebody who's given their life to God. And too much of the church is tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. We have itching ears seeking kind of something to make us feel better, something to get us through. Churches have now changed their, th- their, their service names to worship experiences. Nothing wrong with that, but what are we experiencing? Usually better music. And believe me, we don't like that. Okay, I get it. I mean, what are, we exp- are we experiencing the tangible presence of God? Or are we simply going through the motions? Are my emotions so weak that throughout the week I'm just struggling, I just need a good sermon to get me by? Is that where we're going to live? Because if the branch is connected to the vine, then the life of the vine flows through the branch, and you don't need a good sermon to just get through another week. We were not put on this earth to simply just get through. We were put on this earth to thrive as the body of Christ. Why is the body of Christ so pathetic and weak? I mean, think about this. I don't know if you guys know much about these guys who do like bodybuilding and all that kind of stuff. You'd be surprised at how not strong they really are. Because they look like they could pick up a car and throw it across the room. They really can't. What they do is they just know how to make their muscles very big. And then they get outlifted by guys that are half their size. So it's one of these things where it's like, okay, the show is there, but the substance is lacking. And here we are as a church. But why? Part of it is is because we don't understand the gospel. Do you guys realize that the gospel is essential to everything? Do you guys realize that I would somebody be born again then healed? Don't misunderstand me. I want to see them healed. I want to see God move in their lives. I want to see them transform. I want to see them thrive in every part. But I would much rather see them born again. And you know what? I think we got a big segment of what we call the church today that's fooling itself. Because here's the question that you'd have to ask. If we were to stand before God today, God is going to show up. End of time. Here it is. We're standing at the gate. I know many of you probably have some joke that you've heard before going through your head right now. But we're standing at the gate. And God looked at you and said, why should I let you into my heaven? What is your response? What is most people's response? What if it was based off of what we do? What if he said... What have you done with your time? Because we know, according to Matthew, that there's a segment of the population where they're going to get rejected and they say, but Lord, we did this in your name. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And what does he say in response? Get away from me. I don't know you. How much of the church do you think that is today? So if God is standing there asking the question, how and why should I allow you into my heaven? What would our response be? There's only one way. The problem is we don't talk about it. We do casually, but we don't take the seriousness of what the gospel means. You see, there's a lot of things that have changed in the time of God, since the time of Christ, really, and it centers around the gospel. Now, when you ask most people what the gospel is, they give you one of two answers. The first one is it's the good news. Right, Callie? It's the good news. My response is always, what is the news and why is it good? And that's nobody's ever prepared for a follow-up. 
Do you know why? Because we're just allowed to kind of get by with that. The other part is, like, well, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not it either. So Paul clearly defines it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's go there right now, because we're talking about faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. It says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. So he is going to tell them the gospel that he has already preached to the church in Corinth. Which also you received, in which by you stand, by which also you are saved. So good, whatever this gospel is, this is how we are saved. That's important. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Do you know what it means to believe in vain? It means to never really have believed. For I delivered, verse 3, to you first of all that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. So now what did he just give us? The gospel. Christ died, was buried, and resurrected according to the scripture. Later on, he'll say, now if this didn't happen, your faith is all for naught. You're still in your sins. This is all pointless. But it did happen. Well, how do we know it happened? It says in verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. That means dead. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Well, that's interesting he says that because he already mentioned the twelve. That means that there were more apostles than just the twelve. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Now, why? Did he just tell us who saw him resurrected? Because this isn't blind faith. We're not just believing some fable that was made up. He's like, listen, these people are still around. Go ask them. You don't believe me. You don't trust me. You don't think that I might be telling you the truth. Go ask them. There weren't 500 people that had a hallucination. Most of these people are still alive. Go back to Jerusalem. Then he says, for I am, in verse 9, the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now, it's interesting how he phrases this. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I shouldn't even be counted and called an apostle because why? I was trying to kill them all. I wanted them all gone. I was trying to wipe them out, but yet God's grace, I am what I am. It's his grace towards me that wasn't in vain. It wasn't empty. It wasn't useless. I labored more abundantly. So as a result of his belief, did Paul's life transform? Absolutely. Did every person who believes life transform? Absolutely. Is that still true today? No, we don't because we come near him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. There are people that will spend eternity separated from God that was in church every week. I pray it's nobody in this room. I pray that it's not us that cannot answer the question of why should I allow you into my heaven? Because we got to know. We've got to know the difference. You see, this all began to change with a man named Martin Luther as the reformers started to take place because there was a reformation 
Because as he was reading, and part of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, he was seeing things that seemed to go contrary to Scripture. And he did not have all his theology right. He wasn't even trying to start a movement necessarily, a faction trying to overthrow the Pope. He wasn't trying to do anything. You know what he was trying to do? Save his soul. Because what they were doing and what he was reading did not seem to line up. What do you mean if I just pay some indulgences, I can get my family out of purgatory? Is that what it says? That's not what it says. There were a number of other things. Wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't it be easier if we just, just had this formula that we could follow and just do these things? No, because how would you ever know that you actually completed it? You see, the difference between the biblical gospel and the modern gospel is that we are told to do a bunch of things, and yet the modern, or excuse me, the biblical gospel is all about what Jesus has done. But now we've got a group of people, believers, especially young people, that are disinterested in God. Why? Because we haven't put our money where our mouth is. They see the lives that are being just living whatever, doing whatever. They listen. They're so influenced by social media, it's unbelievable. Do you know that you really should not get theology from TikTok? I know that's crazy, but bad ideas spread like wildfire, and yet there they are. You see, we talk about our lives being given to Him and worshiping Him, and yet we don't want to live our lives for Him. We want a God of convenience, a God who is there when we want Him, a God who is there when maybe we need Him, when we're having a bad time, or we want a new job, or we want a new house, or we want something, and then we're like, oh, thank you, Jesus, for all that you've given me. How about this? Thank you, Jesus, that I spent eternity with you. Thank you, Jesus, that I am made right by you. Thank you, Jesus, that you paid a price that rightfully belonged to me. That punishment, I should have been on that cross, but you took it. And now because of that, I can enter into your heaven. Because you paid for me to get there. Therefore, I am your bond servant. But that's not how we live. We don't live in service to God for perpetuity. We live as a convenience to put God as a part of our life. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. If you actually go back and read some of the writings of Luther, you'll see Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 4 were transformational in his mindset of realizing this is not we are not doing right Romans chapter 1 verse 16 it says for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written the just shall live by faith there's that word faith now he did not mention faith necessarily. He didn't use that word in 1 Corinthians 15. But in Romans 1, he does. Written by the same guy. So you think he changed his mind somewhere along the way? Like, I meant something different for them? I don't think so. Because the word faith simply means believe. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What is the gospel? What Jesus did for you. It is the power of who? God. Do you deserve it? No. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who does what? Believes. In other words, puts their faith, their trust. Do you know how hard that is? And yet how for granted we take it? Because think about this. We're talking about eternity. If you believe that there is eternal life, good and bad, one way or the other, 
you would want to do things to avoid the bad. But how do you know? How do you know that I've done that? How do I know I've said the right things? How do I know I prayed the right prayer? I gave my life to Christ at about eight years old in children's church. What if that lady didn't know what she was doing? She obviously had something wrong with her because she put up with me. So we're talking about salvation and we're just staking in the fact that God did enough and I can just believe it and, and receive it and that's enough, that's good enough. That takes faith. Because when you give your life to Christ, it's not like you wake up the next morning and you're like, whoo, this is awesome. It's not like you feel different. You could, but you don't have to. It said it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and the Greek. For in it, what is it? The gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. There's two parts of faith there. It says the just shall live by faith. There's the faith in salvation, and then there's the faith of salvation. In it is the belief in it. Of it is what we do as a result of it. But what do we need salvation from? See, this is part of the problem. And this is where we have major issues. And this is where young people really need to pay attention. Because unfortunately, they're so influenced. When I talk about young people, I'm talking about if you're 25 or younger, maybe even just a hair older than that, you've not heard some of this stuff. Because you grew up in a generation where God is a God of love. And that's true. But He's also a God of wrath. He's a God of justice. And there's judgment coming. He demonstrated His willingness to judge the world through the flood. What makes us think all of a sudden when He says, the next time I destroy everything, it'll be by fire. He's just joking. What makes you good enough to get into my heaven? When we say that, we're really meaning eternal life with Him. So because of this fact that all we hear is that, well, God is love and Jesus is love. There's a guy named Marcion. He was a first century heretic. And he believed that there were two gods. There was this creator God, and he was this God of judgment. And then there was this other God, this God of love, and he kind of corrected everything, and that's where Jesus falls into some of that. You think there's anything new? There's nothing new. But there is a God of wrath that's coming. What are you saved from? The wrath of God. The rightful judgment that is coming upon all creation, because all creation is tainted with sin, and that judgment is coming, and there's one ticket to avoid it. What do you do? You apply the blood. Where did we learn about that? The Passover. Isn't it fascinating? Do you realize that the Israelites had to deal with every plague? The frogs, the lice, it was around them. The Nile turning to blood. No one's going water skiing that day. Like, it was bad. And then all of a sudden, God said, I'm killing every firstborn. Do you know what they didn't do? Oh, Lord, please don't do that. You're a God of love. You're a God of mercy. Why would you kill every firstborn? No, no, no. Judgment's coming. It's against the gods of Egypt. I have to. Because who was a god? The son of Pharaoh, the son of God. It was coming against the gods of Egypt. I'm going to kill every firstborn. Firstborn animal. Firstborn child. Young and old. I was a firstborn. She was a firstborn. We wouldn't be here. Adios. Some of you are like, hmm, that's been all right. Isaac's back there as the second born, like, hmm, no area, I'm going to be all right. Dibs on a room. Anyway, here's what you got to do, guys, okay? You believe me. Moses is what I want you to tell him. I want them, I want you to go take a lamb. 
and I want you to kill that lamb. But that lamb's got to be perfect in every single way. It's got to be spot, no broken bones, no blemish of any kind. It's perfect lamb. So go out there, find one. Each family's got to go find one, and then they're going to kill the lamb. And we're going to eat it. But here's what you do. You take that blood, and you apply it to the doorpost. And as I come through, if I see that blood, then I'm going to pass over your house. Now, I don't know about you. That's not very reassuring. I'd probably lock the door, too. I, but, but, but think about that. You know what most of us would probably do if we knew that there was something that was coming through that was going to destroy everything? What would we do? We'd either go find a place to hide, or we'd hightail it out of here. What did they do? Okay, God. But they had to get everything right. They couldn't just consume the land. They had to apply the blood. It was the application of the blood that kept judgment from hitting them. That takes faith. This is the gospel, y'all. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Isn't that ironic? That God's wrath we are saved from by God dying on our behalf. Why wouldn't you just sit there like, well, God, why don't you just, I don't know, not kill everybody? Why does he have to do that? He wouldn't be just if he didn't. See, all the things that we say God is, how God has revealed his character... All of those things must come to fruition. That's why man must have the freedom to reject God. Otherwise, they're just acting out of obedience. They're just doing it because. But you can reject him. You can choose to apply that blood. You can choose to not apply that blood. God demonstrates his love towards us in what way? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What way did he demonstrate that to the Israelites? Death is imminent. Here's how you avoid it. It's going to happen. Here's how you avoid it. Did he give them a way out? Did they take it? Seems. Did all of them take it? I don't have any idea. But then it says in verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So there's basically three, I'm going to give you theological terms, so bear with me here. There's three terms that talk about our salvation. The meritorious cause, the efficient cause, Okay, and the instrumental cause. I'll give you the definitions and I'll break this down. The meritorious cause of our justification is that our faith isn't what saves us. It's the ob object of our faith. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is intercession for you and I. That is the object of what we're putting our trust in. You guys see that. So faith alone does not save you if your faith is in the wrong thing. Then you've got the efficient cause, which is the Holy Spirit that quickens us and gives life and draws us in. And the instrumental cause is where we consciously transfer our trust from ourselves into the work of God, into what Jesus has done. God can reckon us righteous because His justice has been satisfied by the blood of Jesus. To tell us die. It is finished. Fully 
satisfied. There is nothing that can be brought back against you. Because when God asks you, why should I allow you into my heaven? What is the answer? Because Jesus gave it all for me. And I put my faith in Him. I no longer am going to try to do this on my own. I'm going to put my trust in Him. But what is the result of that on this earth? If we're being perfectly honest, how do we know that we have done it right? How do we know that we've done enough? How do the Israelites know that, man, what if, what if God wanted that blood like on two-thirds of the right doorpost and one-third of the left? How do we know we did it right? Well, they were going to have a pretty quick answer to that, weren't they? Because they're going to find out. They had no other option than to trust what God had said and that they were willing to do it. So what did God say? He says that if you are a branch that is connected to the vine, what happens? You produce fruit. Fruit is produced. Fruit is not church attendance. It's not. Fruit is not giving money. It's not. Fruit is not necessarily baptizing people. Fruit is not sharing Christian memes on Facebook. What is fruit? We're making disciples. You see, the way that we know is that our life is in demonstration of the goodness of God. It, what do you think the Israelites were thinking after the angel of death come through? And they're all alive. Oh my goodness. We're so grateful to God. It was short-lived, but it was there. If we knew that Jesus was coming back next week, on Thursday, 2 p.m., he's going to be here, and judgment's coming, the wrath of God, what would we do up till, two, or till, till Thursday? Whatever we could think of. Why do we live our lives differently than that? You see, we don't seek God, we seek convenience, we seek comfort, we seek what we want. We don't seek first the kingdom of God. We seek first the kingdom of Chris. The kingdom of Jim. The kingdom of Brett. The kingdom of whomever. We're seeking our desires. What happens after this, and I don't want to get too off in the weeds here because i got one little part left, but when somebody comes to Christ, there's an inheritance that's promised. We see it in 1 Corinthians 3. This inheritance is a reward for obedience. Let me show you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, it says, We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Who is he talking to? The church of Corinth. According to the grace of God which is given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. And another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. What's the day? The day of wrath. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, 
yet so as through fire. Now he's talking about this inheritance. But the works are what? The foundation is laid. The foundation is Jesus Christ and him crucified. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. But the works that we build are what? Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Three of those will survive a fire. Three of those will be consumed by fire. What are we building? Right now, it probably feels like, oh, man, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. Or I can't add anymore. I'm doing everything that I can. And that may be true, but when he told Paul that my grace is sufficient for you, I think that applies to us as well. The problem is we're trying to do things on our own. We're disconnected from the vine. We have got to quit thinking that suddenly the branch gets to run everything. The body does not tell the head what to do. The head dictates to the body what it's going to do. You know how hard it is to get up early in the morning? It's not hard. Get up. It's a mind over matter thing. Just get up. Go to work. Spend time in the Word. You know how easy it is to spend time playing video games and how hard it is to pray? How easy it is to spend time on social media and how hard it is to read your Bible? Because your body is disconnected from the Spirit. Your spirit's yearning. If you're born again, God, I just want to connect. Come on, get with me here. Your body wants to do whatever it wants to do. And those works are going to be revealed. Imagine, you're going to stand before God, because we're all going to stand before God. This isn't a matter of just getting into heaven. He says you're already clean, but, so if you're already clean, then you're in, but then he's going to say, what did you do with your life? And what is your answer going to be? Well, I mean, I went to church, and I raised some kids, and uh, played games, and I went to all the Husker games. That was fun. It was not fun, actually. That's a lie. I mean, what are we going to say? Well, what did you do with the resources that I gave you? Um, I drove a nice car. We had some pretty cool vacations. I mean, what are we going to say to God? See, the part that we forget is that we're not saved for you and I. That's selfish. We're saved because of Him. God, am I your bondservant? What do you want from me? And this all sounds nice, but this is where it's got to get to. See, salvation is what God does by the power of the Holy Spirit. But sanctification is what we do by that same power. Sanctification is where we become more and more like Him, where we die to self, where we're not so concerned with what I want, where we actually stop and say, God, what do you want from me? I told you guys this. All I wanted in my life was to be a drummer who traveled all over the world and played that's all I wanted once I got over the whole weird paleontology phase of my life. But once I was over that, I wanted to play. I loved music. I looked forward to playing. I took every opportunity. I never walked through a music store where there was a drum kit set up that I didn't play on it and was abruptly asked to stop playing on it because I don't like that. Like, there was never a time. I didn't go to a church that they had a drum set that I didn't play. In fact, many years ago when there used to be a movie theater here, I came over here and played, and the roof leaked, and in the middle of the song, it started raining on me. Not in a good way either. In the middle of the song, I stand up and move the drums because I'm getting wet. That was a long time ago. That's all I wanted. God, I just want to do this. Lord, not your will, but mine be done. I went to Bible school. First thing I did, audition for the group. The guy's like, man, you got really good timing. It's like, yeah, I know. When do I start? Well, we don't have a spot for you. Who are we firing? Like, this is what I want to do. Now I don't even want to play the drums. 
ever. When Corey was here and they asked me if I'd play the drums with them, I'm like, are you sure? What happened? I quit chasing what I wanted. Started chasing what he wanted. It's not that I've got it perfect or done everything right or anything. I'm not even trying to insinuate that. What I'm saying is all of a sudden my, my desires changed because it was more so of, God, what do you want from me? I'm your bondservant. Where am I willing to go? What am I willing to do? What am I willing to give? It's a lot of work. I mean, these guys have a ministry down in El Salvador. They're in constant contact with them. They mowed multiple trips. How many ditches did you dig and buildings you build and stuff? It's great now when you go with them because we stay in the Crown Plaza and we pretty much go preach and eat pupusas. It's beautiful. Because they did all the hard stuff before we ever got there. Now, what could they have done with those funds? Anything else? Could have got to Hawaii a lot sooner. But this is what they did. And so when they stand before God, and I'm not trying to pump you up or give you an ego or anything like that, but I mean, it's just the reality of it. If when they stand before God and he says, why should I allow you into my heaven? Their first thing is like, because Jesus paid for thee. He took care of it. Well, what did you do with what I gave you? I served you with all my heart. Gave you everything I had. All belongs to you. And yet they still got to go to Hawaii. Isn't that cool? Because it's not a matter of the stuff. It's what you do with what God has given you. We have lost sight of this. We all think we're right with God and we never stop to ask God, am I? Look at Romans chapter 4. This is the other part that Luther really just dug into. Romans 4, verse 1, we're going to read through most of this. says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, you've done something, so because of that, you deserve something. Verse 5, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes right, uh, righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. We'll come back to that word impute, pay attention to that. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while, un, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed, there it is again, to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also who, uh, who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Now, I could use, without having to say the word circumcised so many times in such a short amount of time, all right? But bear with me. Because what you've got to understand is that when Abraham 
was living his life, and all of a sudden God said, listen, I want you to get up, I want you to go to a place, I'll show you, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And what did he do? He got up and he went to a place. Was he circumcised then? No. He just believed God, and what happened? It was accounted to him for righteousness. So that faith was there from the beginning. Do you realize that he had Ishmael before he had the sign of the covenant? And then after circumcision, the sign of the covenant, he has Isaac, the son of promise. And what did he say? No, no, Lord, Ishmael, this is Ishmael. It's like, no, 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 this is, there's going to be one. And the circumcision was a result of the trust that he already had in God. Hey, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. Every child born to you, every servant you have, every member of your family, and you, I want you to head back to the shed I want you all to get circumcised. All I can think of is like Mel Blanks right now. and <laughs> Sorry, squirrels. You better trust God if that's what he's telling you. You know why we do it on the eighth day after they're born? So they'll never remember it. <laughs> that's why. That's not really why. I mean, he, is, he demonstrated his faith before there was anything he could do. He just simply believed God and he left. Verse 13, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for there, where there is no law... There is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that he had promised, what he had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now stop for a minute. See, seeing to believe or believing to see. Seeing to believe led to the birth of Ishmael. Well, Sarah can't do it. Hagar looks all right. But believing to see, Sarah laughed. Abraham laughed. He's like, uh, God, that's not how this works. But he trusted him. Therefore, Isaac was born. See, he's demonstrating his faith. We always think the Old Testament was all about works. It wasn't. It was all about faith. Do you realize that the judgments that we see wasn't all about God getting ready to drop a hammer. It was all about mercy and compassion too. Wait 400 years for the judgment of the Amorites has not yet come. Jonah, go to Nineveh. Do you guys realize that they were not Jewish? They weren't people of faith. They were not people of covenant. Hey, go to them, tell them to repent. I'm about to wipe them out. Why don't you go give them warning? That's compassion. But here's what he says in verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone, that it was imputed to him. There's that word again. 
but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Why was he delivered up? Because of our offenses. And why was he raised up? For our justification. So who's the center of God's eye? It's all about us. So impute, the word means to credit. It's the Greek word, logazetai. Did you catch that? L-O-G-I-Z-E-T-A-I. For you note takers, I'll say that twice. L-O-G-I-Z-E-T-A-I. It means to reckon, imputed, or credited with. It means that if you embrace the promise of the gospel that Jesus died for your sin, his righteousness is therefore imputed to you. Now it's treated as if God's righteousness is your righteousness. It is put to your credit that you are reckoned by God himself to be righteous. This is what we have to understand. This is where we're putting the greatest amount of faith, is that we are right before God. But if God did that for you, then what should our lives look like? Different than they are. What happens is sometimes things happen in life. Sometimes it's bitterness. Somebody says or does something, and you allow that to affect your relationship with God. Sometimes sickness comes, you allow that to affect your relationship with God. We expect God to act a certain way, even if he didn't say that that's how he's going to respond. And so therefore, you allow that to affect your relationship with God. And yet, we want him to save us, and we're not his bondservant. I mean, imagine somebody showed up and paid off your mortgage. Wouldn't that be great? You think you might live your life in gratitude? You think, and that's going to burn. I mean, what happened to the church that has gotten so inconsiderate, that it's not considering what God has done for us, and that we live our lives for it? So hear me out when I say this, because this is something I've been praying about for months and years and all that. We've talked about revival. We've talked about all sorts of different things, and there's been revivals of times past that are absolutely incredible. I mean, I, I fully believe that I, I would not be living my life the way I am if it were not as a result of the revival because, man, I was so on fire for God, I, I couldn't do anything but serve Him. And I want to see more of that. But I think there's a move of God coming. In fact, I know there is. When, I don't know. Exactly how and where, I don't know. But it's not going to be a place that we go. You know, in, in years past when you hear about revivals, and we just, we just saw one over down in Kentucky, I don't know, was that last summer, summer before, whenever that was, and people were flocking there. They flocked to Toronto, they, they flocked to Brownsville, Florida, they, they flocked to all over the place, or Pensacola, Florida, I guess. They flocked to it, but this one I don't think is going to be that way. And it's interesting, I was just, I was telling Jim this morning, it's something I've been praying about for a long time. Uh, there's a man named R.T. Kendall, and he just he was doing an interview, and he just confirmed everything I said. But he was talking about this dream that he'd had back in the, I'm going to say the 50s, but don't quote me on that. He's, he's a very elder gentleman. About an end-time revival. Because there's no question in most of our minds that, man, time is short. In fact, some of the research I'm doing right now, it seems like time is very, very short. Be that as it may. There's always been people, and there's always been God moving, and there's always been revivals in different parts of the world. But I think this one's going to be different. And one of the things that happened is, is you kind of got, in the church world, you got the word side, and then you got the spirit side. 
and the word side is pretty dry and formal and all of that. And then you got the spirit side, which is very charismatic. And you see very little bleed over between the two. And I remember it was probably five, six years ago where I said something. It's like, why? I remember talking to a friend. I said, why can't you have both? Why is the charismatic side so void of biblical knowledge? And they constantly take verses out of context, but yet you're seeing things happening. And you got this side that rejects that side because they don't know the word and they're weird. They're weird. But why is that? It doesn't make sense to me. And I've told you guys this before, but you know, graduating from a word of faith school, when I'm sitting with this group and we begin to talk theology at the different conferences or whatever, and we're just chit-chatting, and I'm responding biblically with things that they say, and then before long, like, what seminary did you go to? And then I tell them, I went to a word of faith school, and they're like, you can't be word of faith, you know the Bible. That's sad. And I was just sitting there like, why can't we have both? When I was talking to Corey, when we brought Corey up, you know, I went down there in September. And I'm a teacher at heart. I love the Word. I love going in deep, staying down long. I love exegeting Scripture probably more than anything else in this world. And then I got Corey, and I love Corey to death. He's a wonderful man. And he's out there in the streets, and he's praying for people and seeing miracles happen. He's seeing things happen. He just got back from Pakistan. Got all sorts of testimonies going on over there. I'm like, man, that's awesome. And I looked at him and I said, man, what would happen if we took what I do and what you do and it married? What would happen? I said, we'd see a move of God so powerful, it would be unlike anything we've ever experienced in our entire lives. And he's like, yeah, man, that would be incredible. So as I'm sitting there and I'm I'm watching this interview, he tells about this dream he had, and that's essentially what he said, that this last end-time revival was going to be a combination of the Word and the Spirit coming together. And it's not going to be a bunch of, like, a big-name guy in some place you go. It starts in the church. It starts with you and I. It's a revival in our hearts. And that's the problem, is that the church is so lackadaisical when it comes to God. We're just going through the motions. We'll just mix a little Jesus in here or there, and we'll do whatever. We'd rather spend all day on our phones. We can't even sit through a church service without playing a phone game or responding to something or whatever. Because, my goodness, we just got to get out there. We got to have people see us. And he was talking about that, this dream he had. And then he mentioned that he didn't even know this, but Smith Wigglesworth, one of the last things he said, his last prophecy, I think it was 1947, is that there was a revival coming. It was the last end-time revival. And he literally says it's going to be a blending of the Word and the Spirit. I went and looked it up because I didn't even, I knew he had one, but I'd actually never read it. He says it's going to be a blending of the Word and the Spirit coming together. And when you combine those two things, you have something that is completely unstoppable. But in order to do that, in order to live that, in order to be in that, you've got to want that. Because it's only going to the people who are truly seeking after God. And right now, much of the church is truly seeking after themselves. This will be power that's given to the people, those who want it. Because just like he'll never force somebody into his heaven against their will, He's not going to force you to live your life for Him. But what would happen if you did? What would change? Because I have zero regrets in my life. 
There are things that we've not done, things that we have done, things that were good, sometimes didn't work out the way we wanted. But I have zero regrets. And it wasn't a matter of perfection. It's just like, God, all I want is to serve you, whatever that looks like in any capacity. What am I holding back from God that I'm not willing to give to him? And say, God, you take this. This is your, my time is your, my life is your, my money is your, my car is your, my house is your, whatever it is, my career is yours. Lord, where and how can I serve you? You only do that once you realize what you've been saved from. You're saved from the wrath of God. It's deserved to everybody. And everybody's going to get it. Except those who have applied the blood. It's coming. Let's stand up for just a minute. You see, we have got to get our attitudes right with God. We cannot just continue to exist. Yeah, you can do other things. But what are you putting in front of God? What are you putting before Him? Why is it when we're young we just tend to take everything for granted? We expect somebody else to do it for us. Why is that? Because we've been enabled to. But what happens if we actually dove in for ourselves? What happens if we actually said, God, I'm your bondservant, and all I have is yours? What if we knew that the the moment of our life was going to come to an end, and like, Lord, what, what little time I have left, on my knees, I'm praying, God, not my will, yours be done. Whatever it is, whatever I'm facing, whatever's about to hit me, not my will but yours be done. What would happen if we actually did that? It would transform everything. Some of us have family members we've been praying for that God, I just want you to move in their lives and I want to give their lives to you. And yet we're not living our lives fully for Him. And we show Him that by our behavior. We show them that, hey, oh yeah, we can just, we'll just skip this time so we can go do this and do that or whatever. It's not a big deal. We're not fully devoted to Him. What happens if we begin to change that? Everything changes. Everything changes. There wasn't a single disciple of Jesus that wasn't doing okay before He got there. He never once said, here, come follow me. I'm going to show you how to get to heaven. I'm going to show you how to be wealthy. I'm going to show you how you live your best life now. He promised every one of them, including Paul. It's not going to be easy. But if eternity is real and we're expecting that to happen, then who cares about our lives right now? Because this is temporary. Everything that you amass and everything that you will do will cease to exist the moment of your death. Doesn't matter anymore. You will not care. I've had people that tell me they're atheists and it's like, God, I don't believe in God and I wouldn't want to waste my entire life. Serving a God that's not really there, not knowing if there really is a heaven or a hell. Well, will you really care if your life was wasted once you're dead? Probably not. Because it won't matter anymore. So let's just pray. Just lift your hands up to Him and just cry out to Him. Say, God, all I have is yours. Father, forgive us. For the areas of which we have taken for granted. That we have not taken seriously what you have done for us. What you have given for us. What you have paid for us. That we have not lived our lives as in 
servitude to you, but we just live our lives to feed our flesh and to do what we want to do. To never stop and ask, God, what do you want from me? What would you have me to do, Lord? All we've done is sought our desires. So, Lord, reveal to us what's holding us back. Reveal to us what doesn't belong to you. Reveal to us all the things that we're putting in front of you. Lord, we're so grateful for your salvation, for your righteousness. If you've never given your life to Christ, now's the time. Or maybe you did and you're not living your life for Christ, now's the time. Now's the time. Because I promise you, when you stand before God, the last thing on your mind is what your career was where you went to school, how well you did in school, in work, how much money you made, how many houses you own, how many cars you own. None of that will matter when you stand before God. Doesn't matter how many friends you have, how popular you are or were. All that matters is Him. When he says that I gave it all for you, what have you given for me? Father, forgive us. May this be a new day. May this be a day that we recognize truly what your salvation is. how deserved of that judgment we are. But you loved us while we were still sinners and have made us clean. So now, Lord, I pray that you show us the areas where we are disconnected from the vine. Where we're more carnally minded than we are spiritually minded. We're more focused on the things of this earth than we are the things of eternity. Convict our hearts, Lord, to do what you would have for us. Of the things that eat up our time and our resources, that offer no fruit whatsoever in our lives. But all they do is bring temporary satisfaction. May our lives be glorifying to you, Lord. Glorifying to you. Holding nothing back. Pressing into the greater things that God has. Try as you might, your ways are not his ways. And try as you might, you'll continue to spin your wheels 
tried his way. We worship you, Jesus. Lord, I pray for every person that's here and those that couldn't make it today. May they have soft hearts and open mind to the leading of your spirit. It transforms those things that need to be transformed. That when they stand before you, they won't have regrets. Lord, I pray for a mighty outpouring of your spirit. An awakening in our hearts. Awakening in our minds. To no longer chase after the things of this earth, things of this world as no matter how much of it we catch, never truly brings satisfaction. Lord, I pray that we live our lives fully for you. Be glorified in everything we do. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out. Be different. Seek the Lord. See what he has to show you. Have a great week. Have foundations and we'll see you Wednesday.